Richard Adan, the Binny Bond's 22-year-old night manager, is only doing his job. It's not his fault this asshole needs to pee in their bathroom as staff only. Adan's dealt with his share of similar drunken fools, and he's also dealt with plenty of junkies shooting up and leaving syringes in the bathroom, and that's why, as much of a shame as it is for the customers who would only use the John for its God-given purpose, it's a rule they've had to implement and stick by. Well, sure, there are exceptions, like his man William Burroughs. Just a couple of weeks ago, he invited Richard over to the bunker, where he got to hang with Paddy Smith and John Giorno. So you're damn well right that customers like Bill can use the John whenever they damn well please. He did a few nights ago when he was in for coffee and a grilled cheese and of course Frankie, that scumbag, quasi-homeless, wino-regular, was there to complain about it. How come you're giving that guy special treatment? Because that guy's a great rider and a friend. And you're just a no-good drunk, so fuck off, Frankie, and be glad I don't boot your ass to the curb where you belong for constantly making your coffees Irish. Booze isn't allowed in here. So Frankie shut the fuck up, Burroughs took a leak, and all was well at the Binnybon. But here we go again. This stuttering jerk-off who doesn't deserve to be anywhere near these two pretty ladies he came in with isn't taking no for an answer. Luckily, for guys like this, there's an easy solution. The dumpster around the corner. At this time of night, it's essentially a public urinal, and as long as they don't piss on John Lennon's face in the mural that a customer put up a few months ago, he couldn't care less what they do. They're free to shoot up and piss on their shoes or each other all they want. But Richard shouldn't even be here. Well, he should. It's his shift, and he's just about to punch out. He's just got to refill the ketchup bottles, do the register, and then he'll be heading home to his girl who's waiting up for him. He's going to bring her waffles, and they'll have dinner for him, breakfast for her together in bed. But damn, this whole gig isn't really him. Here he is, shepherding this belligerent asshole to the dumpster because his father-in-law owns the place and he's got bills to pay. But he's no night manager. He's an actor, goddammit, and a legit one, not one of these career waiters who boast about being an actor to get girls into bed when their best role is a fucking jet in the high school production of West Side Story. Nah, Richard's play got a great review from the New York Times. He just came back from touring a play in Spain. He's about to shoot a recurring role in a PBS series. Actor. Yeah, he's going places. But he can do a lot more than stand in front of a camera and smile. He's just as much of an intellectual. A writer. One whose brand spanking new play is all set to be produced at La Mama next season. Maybe this kind of bullshit wouldn't bother him so much if he was really just a night manager. But he's not. So it does. So I've read so much about the Binibon Cafe over the past year we've spent researching and writing this series that I really feel like I know it. COVID has kept me away from New York City for over a year now, and it's funny, but whenever I think of going back, apart from my bookshops, the place I fantasize about visiting the most is a place that closed when I was a year old, the Binibon. Of course, the cafe is forever connected to the tragedy that happened there, but in my imagination, it's become a kind of cozy, almost peaceful place. What? You're talking about some shithole cafe where junkies hung out, where drunk college students went after the after-hours clubs closed, and where, as we'll discuss in this episode, something truly horrible happened. That's your cozy, peaceful place? In a sense, yeah. And why is that then? Well, like most nostalgia, my longing for the Binibon is not the most rational. To summarize, I'd say it primarily has to do with the fact that no one ever used a cell phone there. Ah, uh, I see. Well... No one ever used a cell phone in Jonestown, either. You want to go there, too? Okay, point taken. I need to do a better job of explaining, so let me try. It's related to this passage from Jack Henry Abbott's In the Belly of the Beast that's been kicking around in my mind a lot lately. It goes, 
The concept of death is simple. It is when a living thing no longer entertains experience. So when a man is taken farther and farther from experience, he is being taken to his death. You see where I'm going with this? Sure. So you're basically telling me that all the time we spend swiping and scrolling and listening to podcasts is not real experience. And therefore it's basically death or just helping us kill time until we actually die. Well, I guess I'm just stating the obvious, but yeah, that's about right. There's an interesting connection to Mailer's classic, basically incomprehensible essay, The White Negro, where he argues that a secure existence is a bored and therefore a sick one. He says that the fate of the mid-20th century man after the Second World War was to live with death. And the way to do that was to divorce oneself from the society of comfort and security and embrace death by becoming a criminal, an outlaw, or a psychopath. So would he mean that these days, if we want to accept the terms of death and embrace it, we should just spend our time tweeting and TikToking? Or is he saying that the way not to be one of the walking dead is to be a psychopath and or criminal? Well, the truth is I'm not really sure what the fuck Mater's saying, but I'm certain that it's mostly just hot air and bravado, like most every essay he ever wrote. But yeah, that's essentially what he was going for. His philosophy of hip states that the only life worth living is a dangerous, rebellious, and a violent life. Although, as you can probably tell by the title, the essay gets more ridiculous, offensive, and racist as it goes on. Nowadays, to tweet or not to tweet might be the question, but in Mailer's time, he believed the only sane path in our sick society was the criminal psychopath route. So, let me get this straight. Criminals and psychopaths are hip, and everybody else is square? That's right. So Abbott was hip. Well, let me see. Abbott was impulsive, angry, and violent, and therefore, yep, hip as fuck. But I'm Santiago Lemoine, a failing writer, bookseller, and I'm only hip according to the philosophical principles of the great Huey Lewis. And I'm Corey Eastwood, a failing writer, bookseller, and I used to be hip, i.e. I used to get arrested a lot, but now I'm 40 and sober. This is episode two of Penknife podcast about writers who may or may not have written about crime, but who definitely committed it. This season we're telling one long story, so if you haven't heard episode one, we suggest you go back and give it a listen. Okay, there might not have been much substance in what we just said, but I think there's definitely something behind it. You see, in the 60s, Mailer was simply trying to add to the age-old argument that, in order to write, writers must first and foremost live. He grew up in an era where some asshole named Ernest Hemingway had essentially dictated that writers must not just exist, but live authentic, robust, and wild, wild lives in order to write. In those days, dust jacket bios liked to list a writer's previous jobs and occupations. Lumberjack, GI, soda jerk, card shark, you name it, in order to give them some real-world cred. And it didn't stop there. Along with having worked jobs or fought in wars, writers were also supposed to have been starving, alcoholic and or drug addicted, depressed, and of course, tortured. In his essay The White Negro, and indeed throughout his career, Mailer attempted to advance the platonic ideal of the tortured artist to its limit by including criminality and a proclivity for violence amongst the traits a, quote, real writer should possess. That's absolute nonsense, obviously. And yet, 
I must admit, there's a part of me that's always glorified those same things. When I was young, I essentially thought, real writers are poor, sad, and alcoholic, so that's who I should be. I can now say I recognize that all as bullshit, but isn't my romanticization of New York City in the 1980s more of the same? Violent, impoverished, patriarchal, and racist, but real in a way that contemporary society, particularly in our virtual pandemic age, feels false? In any case, this episode, and this season in general, is going to continue to explore the concept of the, quote, authentic writer, and try to answer the question, what happens when authentic becomes synonymous with criminal? In the spring of 81, Jack Henry Abbott was freed on parole, and his book, In the Belly of the Beast, was scheduled for a summer release. As we learned in the previous episode, while the folklore around the Abbott case is that Mailer got him out of jail, the reality is that Abbott dropped some dimes on other prisoners in exchange for early parole. But while the Bureau of Prisons would deny that his soon-to-be-fame as a writer was also responsible for his parole, it definitely helped. And so, too, did the glowing recommendation letters from Mailer and his publishers. To be near them, and to work for Mailer on the book he was writing about ancient Egypt, Abbott applied to live in New York. The Bureau of Prisons consented and put him in the Salvation Army halfway house on the Bowery and 3rd Street, which, incidentally, is still there and just two blocks away from our bookstore, Codex. But as Lou used to croon, you know, those were different times. And the Bowery and the East Village in general was rugged and fucking raw. Abbott, who had spent over 24 of his previous 25 years living in conditions so grueling that if prisoners were animals, the guards would have surely been arrested for animal cruelty, referred to his new neighborhood as a, quote, human zoo. During his short stay there, he witnessed multiple stabbings, robberies, and a firebombing. He'd barely been there a week when he decided to start carrying a blade for protection. At the same time, the advance of Abbott's book was making the rounds and receiving rave reviews. He'd become an overnight literary celebrity. De Niro's name was being mentioned to play the lead in the film version of In the Belly of the Beast, and Mailer and his radical chic crowd made sure he was on every important guest list. But by all accounts, the real Abbott was nothing like the man he was on the page. It's not uncommon for writers to disappoint in person. It's why we're writers rather than, say, politicians. <clears throat> Norman Mailer. But Abbott bore almost no resemblance to his literary persona. In person, he was exceptionally diffident and shy, and spoke with a stutter of which he was deeply self-conscious. He never talked to people he didn't know and carried the classic ex-con phobia of showing his back in public. He kept to corners at parties and always sat against the wall at restaurants. Mailer's sixth wife, Norris Church, described him as, quote, slim, neat, and nervous. He had a slightly exotic look with tanned skin and was much more attractive than I had anticipated. An anecdote from Norris illustrates how steep Abbott's learning curve would be for life on the outside. When she takes him to Macy's to shop for jeans, he doesn't believe her when she tells him he can take a pair to try on in the dressing room. You mean they let you take and try these on with nobody watching? It's like he was a real-life example of the feral child raised in the jungle who needs to be taught the ways of civilization as an adult. But his social idiosyncrasies and inadequacies didn't really matter. 
What mattered to Mailer and company, and what would soon matter to the general reading public, wasn't the man himself, but his story. After all, it was a redemption story, and who doesn't love one of those? A bastard child born into the penitentiary, he'd spent his life being tortured by guards, drugged against his will, and subjected to years of solitary confinement. And he also killed a guy. Right. Not only had he endured these unthinkable horrors, but he'd murdered a man as well. He'd suffered, he'd killed, but he'd also read and written and emerged from it all a free man, not yet published, but already a successful author. The against-all-odds nature of his story is what makes it so irresistible and so quintessentially American. The American dream not only depends upon the illusion of an ease of class mobility and a meritocracy, but it also needs the redemption narrative. The U.S. has always been a land of second, third, and fourth acts, and in 1981, no one better exemplified this than Jack Henry Abbott. The terrible irony is that those that do find redemption despite a punitive penal system that is clearly focused on punishment rather than rehabilitation, and those that do find riches despite all the invisible barriers of class, race, gender, etc., can in some cases unintentionally serve to justify the system set up to keep the prison class incarcerated, people of color disenfranchised, and the poor impoverished. Right. That's one of the most insidious traits of the whole fake meritocratic system. Those few exceptions to the rule only prove that, no matter what one's circumstances are, rehabilitation and wealth are always possible, at least in theory. And so we're told that those that fail to achieve what, say, Abbott or Dolly Parton or LeBron James achieved, have failed not because of insurmountable systemic hurdles there to maintain a patriarchal, racist and plutocratic society, but because of their own individual inadequacies, or because they just haven't tried hard enough. For Abbott to truly expose how thoroughly rotten the U.S. prison system was, wouldn't it make much more sense for him to reoffend, To show that as a state-raised convict, he was a completely broken human being? That redemption really was not possible? If the prisons had really fucked him up as much as he claimed, how could he now be such a success? And if he could do it... You can hear Reagan and his ilk chirping. Why can't the rest of them? On Sunday, July the 20th, the New York Times published a review by Terence Depre of the soon-to-be-released In the Belly of the Beast, calling it awesome, brilliant, perversely ingenious, and the most intense, I might even say the most fiercely visionary book of its kind in the American repertoire of prison literature. In those simpler, pre-internet times, when people actually read the hard copy of the paper, it had gone to print without the editors knowing what had happened downtown shortly before daybreak the previous morning. Jack Henry Abbott, who was used to pissing in sinks and shitting on cold cell floors, has just been refused the use of the staff-only restroom. Jack's had a few, and half the point of coming to the cafe was to take a leak. Now this dickhead is denying him that, and doing so in front of the ladies? Seriously? Who the fuck does this little shit think he is? Humiliating him in front of Susan and Veronique. Pretty boy's even smiling. He's laughing at him. Jack can see it in his eyes. In his own eyes, however, there's no laughter. Hasn't been in years. Not a shred. His thousand-yard stare was born from the epic darkness of blackout cells. From freezing in strip cells. From being drugged and beaten, chained to the wall, the floor. From living in his own excrement and feeding off roaches. Jack wrote about the origin of the animal coldness in his eyes. Now trained on a dung. He wrote, I have been chopped to pieces by a life of deprivation of sensations. By beating so frequent, I am now a piece of meat and bone. 
by lies and by drugs that attack my nervous system. I've had my mind turned into steel by the endless smelter of time and confinement. I've been twisted by justice the way other men can be twisted by love. Abbott's been twisted, and this kid, this fucking kid, he has no clue. Look at him. He looks like he wants to go. Seriously? You want to go? Well then let's fucking go, boy. Let's fucking go fuck all. Yeah, Jack's hot, red hot. Searing and stepping out into the pre-dawn swelter doesn't help any. The kid is telling him to move around the corner to the dumpster. Is he kidding me? He thinks he can talk to Jack like that? The ball's on this son of a bitch. Oh yeah? You wanna play? And the knife comes out and now the fucker doesn't look so cocky. Now he's turning around, slinking back to the restaurant like the little bitch he is, but Jack's not about to let him walk away like that. You don't disrespect Jack and walk away scot-free. No, you just don't. And Jack doesn't even think about it. He doesn't have to. He's on him from behind and the knife sweeps around with the velocity and mechanical precision of a gyroscope. Its blade moves as if the physics of the universe defies it going in any other direction. As if it were all fated long ago, a magnetic pull between Adan's chest and that little piece of steel. Jack lets go. And that's that for both Jack Abbott and Richard Adan. But life has a way of going on. For Jack anyway, who screams, you want more trouble, do you? For Richard, who's now backpedaling, gurgling blood and manages to respond, God, no, are you crazy? You didn't have to kill me. For Richard, it doesn't go on for very long. He falls on his face and blood from his chest wound wells up on the sidewalk then drips into the street. The bits you've heard Ramona read in the last two episodes from the perspective of Susan Rojas, Veronique de Saint-André, Richard Adan, and Jack Henry Abbott are all, obviously, creative nonfiction. We tried to remain as faithful as possible to the research we did on the real people while imagining the thoughts of their characters. Somehow, the character we had the most trouble with was the one whose perspective on the night is most well-known, Jack Henry Abbott. You think it's because we weren't able to get into the mind of a murderer? Could be part of it. Shall we pat ourselves on the back for that? Yeah, we could. Although the great Brett Easton Ellis didn't have the same problem, and he turned out all right. Well, did he? Whatever happened to that guy? Anyhow, we struggled to conjecture what Abbott thought, because he wrote extensively about this night at the Biddy Bond, and as far as I can tell, most of what he wrote was bullshit. The bulk of it was published in the form of a play called The Death of Tragedy, which compromises the first third of his significantly less well-received follow-up to In the Belly of the Beast called My Return. Spoiler alert, the return he's talking about is his return to the slammer. In the play and its appendix, which include 20 pages of detailed diagrams about what happened that night, there's no argument about a bathroom. In Jack's account, there's just a Don being extremely hostile and antagonistic for no apparent reason before inviting Abbott outside for a fight. According to Jack, Shortly after they got out onto the sidewalk, Adan pulled a knife on him. No knife was found afterwards, and no witnesses saw Adan with a knife. The facts, as presented at the trial, seemed to be that the fight was most definitely about the bathroom, and though Adan was leading him to the dumpster where he could pee, Jack's paranoia convinced him that they were going outside to throw down. Apparently, Adan volunteered to stay and keep a lookout so that Abbott could piss in peace, but when Adan came towards him to tell him someone was coming, Abbott interpreted the action as a provocation for a fight. 
More words were had, but witnesses confirmed that eventually, when Adan realized he'd gotten into it with the wrong guy, he became conciliatory and tried to walk away. It was too late, though. Abbott sprung at him with the alacrity of a boxer. He grabbed him by the neck from behind and stabbed him in the chest with such force and precision that it may have sliced his heart in two. Abbott later said, I remember seeing a a big river of blood shot at high velocity, you know, and from from where he was laying face down in the gutter and I knew he was dead and I had, I had, you know, I, I have to run. And run he did, all the way to Mexico and then New Orleans where he lived on the lamb for about two months before he was apprehended. The ensuing trial was a media circus attended by celebrities such as Susan Sarandon and Christopher Walken and the proceedings regularly received front page coverage. Mailer stood by Abbott, condemning the murder, of course, but also arguing that Jack was a product of the U.S. prison industrial complex and that it was neither just nor sane to send him back to the same place that made him a murderer. This time, though, Mailer and company's help couldn't save him. In 1982, Abbott was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 15 to life. Mailer had envisioned in the belly of the beast to be a call to arms in the prison reform movement that could expose the inhumane system for what it was, and eventually force radical change in the way the U.S. deals with crime and punishment. The horrible irony is that the book did have a significant impact on the prison movement, but it just wasn't the one they'd wanted. The book came out at the dawn of Reagan's tough-on-crime, law-and-order 80s. Politicians were already pulling funding for the reform and rehabilitation programs that had been implemented in the comparatively liberal 70s, And now, in Abbott's cautionary tale, they had a high-profile example of why rehabilitation did not work. Look what happens if we don't lock them up and throw away the key. One also can't help but wonder if the memory of Abbott's recidivism wasn't in the mind of judges and parole boards who have kept, or continue to keep, high-profile inmates such as Hurricane Carter, Leonard Peltier, or Mumia Abu-Jamal in prison despite all reason, rather than release them. The other blow that Abbott's crime dealt the prison reform movement was simply that people didn't read the book. Well, I should restate that. They did read the book. After news got out that its author was a murderer, it became an instant bestseller. But it was mostly as a novelty, a murder story accessory, and not as the serious indictment of the prison industrial complex that it could have been. Indeed, it's some of the most compelling writing I've ever read about how violence begets violence in U.S. prisons and how the U.S. will forever remain a violent society as long as it perpetuates and encourages that violence in its penal institutions. Upon Abbott's return to prison, he met and married a CUNY philosophy professor named Naomi Zaks, and together they wrote My Return. In it, Abbott plays a self-righteous, unjustly maligned victim and Zach comes off as a lunatic who's intent on demonizing and blaming Adon for his own murder. She alleges that he was a hard drug user, the only weed turned up in his system during the autopsy, and that the press's claim of him being an actor and playwright were overblown. She writes that he was poorly educated, and then uses his full-time job at the cafe as proof that he was no artist. It moves from sickening to just outright loco when she writes, quote, Adon was 22 years old, a grown man. Statistics verify that most crimes of violence in the streets are committed by men in his age group, 18 to 24. He had lived in a violent section of the city for about two years. He knew the streets. He was the same age as the son of Sam Killer. 
He outweighed Abbott by almost 50 whoa, pounds. Whoa, 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 hold on a second. Did I hear that clearly? Adan was the same age as David Berkowitz? So he definitely must have been a violent knife-wielding monster whom Abbott had no choice but to stab in the chest, of course. That makes total sense. Jack did us all a service by killing him. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Jack. Anyhow, my return is a truly pathetic epilogue to what amounted to the end of a very sad, tragic life. After going back to jail the year he was released, Jack Henry Abbott spent another 20-plus years behind bars before hanging himself in his cell in 2002. So the thing that really bothers me about this sad story is that Mailer wrote an 1,100-page book about Gary Gilmore, in which he basically makes the claim that, given the fucked-up life he had behind bars, reoffending was inevitable. So if after the fact it was so clear with Gilmore, why didn't he also see it coming with Abbott? Hmm. Perhaps because Abbott was such a good writer, and Mailer identified with him on that level? His logic might have been, if Abbott's a writer like me, then he's not a killer. Writers write. They don't kill. Hmm. Yeah, the pen and the sword distinction. Yet the great irony is that Mailer was one of the most vocal proponents for writers to arm themselves with both. Well, it's easy for us, after the fact, to fault Mailer for not seeing the writing on the wall. But to return to what we discussed at the beginning of episode one, I think it's fairly standard to believe that there are very bad people out there. Rapists, murderers, war criminals, etc. And then there are people like you and me. And the fact that Abbott could write was enough to make Mailer see him as a person just like himself. Mm, I'm not so sure, but let's assume he did. Like true crime podcasts, Abbott's book is a sort of compass. It allows us to calculate the exact distance between the criminals and ourselves, the degrees that separate us on our moral grounds. They can make us feel good about our own miseries and shortcomings, because at least we're not one of them. It's what makes horrible true crime podcasts addictive. They allow us to fantasize that we're nothing like those people, neither the murderers nor the victims. That terrible shit only happens in the realm of other people. People we know don't kill or get killed. And I think it was precisely the publication of Abbott's letters in the New York Review of Books and the impending publication of his book that brought him from the realm of them to the realm of us. The fact that he'd been accepted by the literary establishment convinced us that his narrative arc would end in success. By publishing this book, Mailer and company manufactured Abbott's redemption, and in doing so, they fooled everyone, themselves included. Mm, but I don't know. Maybe we're not giving Mailer enough credit. Or maybe we're giving him too much credit. Maybe he wasn't blind to the potential that Abbott could kill again. Maybe he knew there was a chance, and it was a chance he felt was worth taking. In a press conference after the trial, he told reporters, quote, culture is worth a little risk, i.e. losing a Don was an unfortunate but necessary sacrifice. Yeah, that's another old argument. I mean, if Sad hadn't engaged in so much torture and rape, he'd never have been arrested and we wouldn't have the 120 days of Sodom. And if Burroughs hadn't shot his wife in the face, well, maybe he'd never have been in a place to create something as transgressive as Naked Lunch. And if Gide hadn't molested young boys, we'd probably never have his great novel, The Moralist. Each one of them left behind what we today call victims, but to Mailer, they were essentially collateral damage, a price worth paying for great art. Abbott himself seemed to be on board with this idea that writers should somehow be exempt from the laws that govern regular people. During his trial, when the Binibon's owner, a dance father-in-law, Henry Howard, called Abbott scum and filth, Abbott's retort was, go write a book. Howard interpreted this ridiculous, rather pathetic comeback by saying, that's really in the league with Norman Mailer. 
If you write a book, you're okay. You don't have to follow the law. And while we're shitting on Mailer here, which if you listen to the rest of this series, you realize is a favorite hobby of ours, I think it's time to tell the audience what they probably already know and have been waiting for us to mention. What's that? Well, earlier, when we were trying to get in his head to explain how he didn't see it coming with Abbott, our best defense was Mailer thinking, well, Abbott's a writer and therefore he's like me, a good guy, not a murderer. Aha, I see where you're going. The sweet, tragic irony. Mm, claro que sí. Generally speaking, this reductive idea that writers can't be horrible criminals is ridiculous, but it's particularly laughable coming from Norman fucking Mailer. Especially because, one night, in November 1960, after announcing his candidacy for the mayor of New York City, he got rip-roaring drunk and stoned and attacked his wife, Adele Morales, stabbing her once in the back and once in the breast, missing her heart by a matter of millimeters. His weapon? You guessed it. A rusty penknife. We thought this was the end of the Abbott story. But in fact, we realized we couldn't tell it without connecting it to the lives and careers of his two famous pen pals, writers who were arguably even worse criminals than Jack himself. The next episode will begin telling you the stories of Norman Mailer and Jerzy Kaczynski. Penknife is created, written, and produced by Corey Eastwood and Santiago Lemoine. Ramona Stout is our editor and narrator. The logo and all things visual have been made by Nelly Cuellar Torres. The sound design, the music, and all things audio are the work of Diego Sanchez of La Pianola Studio in Buenos Aires. Our website, penknifepodcast.com, was built by Flor Lopez. And a very special thanks to Mr. Rico Benelli for letting us turn his spare bedroom into a recording studio. Season one of Penknife took us two years to make. We're eager to get started on season two, and trust me, we've got some really good stories about writers behaving badly, but to do so, we need your help. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and want season two to become a reality, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash penknife to support us. A cup of coffee or two a month would go a long way. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Penknife on whatever app or platform you're using. And most importantly, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend about us. And thank you for listening. <laughs>